I'll be reading from 1 Peter 3, starting with verse 13 through the 22nd verse. And who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense for everyone who asks you about the account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that the thing in which they are, you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who were once disobedient when the patience of God was kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. Remain standing for prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your plan that was so amazing something that man could never imagine. And you are always shocking us with your righteousness, your goodness, and your love. Thank you for these words. I pray that you will uh, help us as Tom shares from your word. Help us to be guided by your word and to learn. Be with Tom as he speaks. And uh, help us go from here being ever changed. For it's in your son's precious name we ask. Amen. Good morning. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the words unjust suffering? I suspect for many believers here, your first thought would be of Jesus Christ, who suffered the the greatest injustice in the history of God's created universe. He who was uncreated suffered in place of us. Some of you might think of a particularly painful episode that you or someone that you love has experienced in this life, and there are many that that we know about within this room. The first thought for others might be uh, descriptive words like terrible or evil or even intolerable. The very thought of injustice provokes very heartfelt and a very negative response in the hearts of all who value justice. But I wonder how many of us, upon hearing the words unjust suffering, would think first of a word like blessed or rejoice or glory. Those are words that Peter associates with unjust suffering in this passage and throughout the rest of this great epistle. In the verses that my brother Jonathan just read, Peter yet again challenges all of our closely held assumptions about how things ought to work in this life. In fact, he challenges our very definitions of what constitutes real harm 
and what constitutes real blessing. The essential structure of the passage is pretty straightforward. Verses 13 to 17 talk essentially about how we are to suffer. And verses 18 to 22 focus essentially on how Jesus suffered. And in both of those sections, after God addresses how suffering is supposed to happen, he talks about what he does with it. As is the case throughout this epistle, Christ's suffering and death is presented to us as the example, the template that shows us how God intends for us to handle suffering. And then he tells us what he does with it when we handle it on his terms. Peter, of course, already made this same connection between Christ's suffering and ours just in the previous chapter, in chapter 2, verses 21 to 25. So this is Peter's round two (laughs) to burn this critical truth into the hearts of all believers. At the center of God's template to show us how to handle suffering is the cross. When Peter turns his attention to that template in verse 18, he says, For Christ also died once for all, for sins once for all, the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. But it's important to bear in mind that Jesus' suffering did not begin at the cross. It didn't begin when he was arrested. His suffering began when He took on flesh and dwelt among the likes of us. He suffered every day that that He, as the perfect man and perfect God, the Holy One, had to dwell in the midst of the likes of us. He knows what suffering is. The question God sets before us day after day, beloved, is not what would Jesus do? The serious problem with that question is that it leaves far too much room for us to come up with sin-distorted answers that give us an easy out, especially when it comes to things like suffering. The question God sets before us is, what did Jesus do? The The cross is the focal point of His answer. But everything that God's Word tells us about life, the life and the suffering and the death of Jesus Christ explains to us how we are to live now and how we must approach the matter of unjust suffering. My plan of attack this morning will be for us to consider four major principles that Peter presents to us in this passage for suffering well. And we'll see that each of these principles is based on Christ's own example. Here are the four principles. We are to suffer for righteousness, not for evil. We are to suffer without fear. We are to suffer purposefully. And we are to suffer with good conscience. First, the first thing that will always be true if we are suffering on God's terms instead of ours will be that we're suffering for the sake of righteousness. We will suffer for doing good, not for doing evil. Now that includes more than just the direct persecution that comes upon us for the proclamation of the gospel. Much more. Peter has already given us numerous examples of believers suffering for righteousness' sake simply because they approach 
their relationships with those who were in authority over them on God's terms instead of on man's. Life is filled with relationships and situations in which obedience to God dramatically increases the likelihood that we will suffer hardship, injustice, and abuse precisely because we are obeying God. And that will happen even before we open our mouths to proclaim the gospel. In verse 13, Peter poses a question to us. He says, And who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for doing good? Now that verse has to be understood in the context of what came just before it and what comes just after it. In Peter's quote from Psalm 34 just before this, Verses 10 and 11 say that if we want to love life and see good days during our time on this earth, we must turn away from evil and do good. Verse 12 explains why. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and His ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That means God supports those who do good and God opposes those who do evil. And then comes verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for doing what is good? The very next thing that Peter says in verse 14 is, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Now here's what you get if you take that whole flow of thought as one continuous statement. Those who do evil have God to do them harm Those who are zealous for doing good have nobody to do them harm. And finally, we may indeed suffer for doing what is good, but when we do suffer for doing what is good, we have nobody to harm us. And thus we will not be harmed. Instead, we will be blessed. Now, you might be thinking, I don't know about you, Tom, but in my book, the word suffering and the word harm are kind of synonymous. If there's any chance that I'm actually going to suffer for doing what's right, then the assertion that there's nobody to harm me when I do what's right is just plain false. But what Peter is calling us to here is a radical redefinition of terms. A dramatic change to our entire grid for understanding what actually causes blessing and what actually causes harm. We equate suffering with harm. And we equate the absence of suffering with blessing. But God says no, through Peter, he says no, you've got all this wrong. Neither suffering nor the absence of suffering determines whether you are harmed or blessed. I do. And because I alone am sovereign over blessing all of it and over all harm, I can use suffering to bring about either. Either harm or blessing. It's all in God's hands. Before we go any further, there's a really important question each of us here needs to answer. Are you willing to let God radically change your entire understanding about what actually harms you and what actually blesses you? Because if you're not, you will walk out of here this morning dismissing this passage as a bunch of words that have no real connection with 
experience and reality. And your approach towards suffering in this life won't change a bit. But if you are willing to let God overturn all your assumptions about what really harms you and what really blesses you, then the reality that that Peter is presenting here will revolutionize every single day of your life. That's what's at stake here. For many in this room, (laughs) this truth already has revolutionized your life. I know that because I've been privileged to to watch how many of you handle suffering on these terms. At the end of 2 Corinthians 4, Paul declares that for us whose lives are given over to God's purposes, even the suffering that comes upon us as part of the curse, including the daily decline of these mortal bodies, is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. That's because God uses our godly response to all suffering to glorify Himself. We need to think hard about what God is saying to us about what actually harms us and what actually blesses us. And then we need to ditch our own assumptions and embrace without reservation what He's telling us. God declares to you very, very clearly that when you suffer for doing what is right, it is impossible for that suffering to take you out of the realm of His rich blessing. Instead, He declares that He uses that very suffering to accomplish the exact opposite. He says, when you suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. First, we are to suffer for doing what's right, not for doing what's wrong wrong or evil. When we do, that suffering deprives us of no good thing, and instead, by God's hand, the suffering is used to multiply blessing to us. Do you believe that? God commands you to believe it. Secondly, we are to suffer without fear. If you look at verses 14 to 15 in their immediate context, Peter is not talking here primarily about how we respond when some unbeliever looks at how we live and how we handle suffering and and says, wow, that's really impressive. How'd you pull that off? Now, I've certainly seen that scenario before, even with some here. But that's not what Peter's talking about. He's talking about how we conduct ourselves when our faithfulness in doing good as followers of Christ puts us directly at odds with those who find our zeal for righteousness to be an offense, a grievous offense. He says, do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. And then two verses later, he says, when they slander us and revile our good behavior... That's not supposed to be a problem. When they revile our good behavior, he's not talking about our proclamation, he's talking about our lives. In the next chapter, he says that these godless people are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation that they love so dearly. So they malign you. They mock you. They curse you. 
They hate you because you threaten everything that they hold dear. When we are zealous for doing good, for doing the things that match up with God's character, when we are truly following Christ, not just with our lips, but with our lives, everything about the way we live becomes an offense to unbelievers. We've been talking about that this morning, right? My brother Steve, what he shared this morning. You don't have to do anything more than say that God gets to tell us who's male and who's female. And you've become the enemy of the culture. And they will seek to harm us because of the offense that we present to them. Peter says, do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Do not fear the persecution that comes upon you for doing what is right. Instead, use it. Don't fear it. Use it. Suffer without fear. And suffer purposefully. I find it very instructive that when Peter commands us in verse 15 to be ready to give an answer for the hope that's in us, to speak out for Christ, the opportunity to do so is presented not as the cause of our suffering, but as the fruit of our righteous suffering. God intends to use the unjust suffering that comes upon us because of our godly behavior to give us opportunities to speak out for Christ, to tell people about our hope. Not the other way around. It doesn't mean that we'll never suffer for the proclamation of the gospel. We certainly will. But what God is saying is, live for Christ, and I'll give you all kinds of opportunities to proclaim Christ. Never let fear of men keep you from obeying Christ or from proclaiming Christ. Men control neither blessing nor harm. (laughs) None of it. God alone controls both. So instead of fearing what men will do to you because you're, you're following Christ, use the suffering you experience at the hand of godless men as an opportunity to proclaim Christ. Both Peter and Paul got to spend plenty of time in chains... (laughs) for both their lives and their proclamation. And both of them got to see God use those imprisonments to touch many lives with the good news concerning Jesus Christ. During his imprisonment in Rome, Paul wrote these words found in the first chapter of Philippians. He said, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. You know who the Praetorian Guard was? That's the palace guard of Caesar the Emperor. And he says, And most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Isn't that cool? Paul rejoiced to see that all that he was suffering for the sake of Christ was being powerfully put to use by God, both to draw others, including those from Caesar's own household, to Christ 
and to embolden his fellow believers to have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Is your approach to suffering purposeful? The way Paul's was? The way Peter's was? More to the point, is your approach to suffering purposeful the way Christ's was? In 1 Peter 2.24, Peter says, He himself bore our sin in his sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds we were healed. How's that for a purpose? Here in chapter 3, verse 18, he says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. That's what you call purposeful, unjust suffering. Does your suffering expand the reach of Christ's atoning death to lost men and women? Or is it just an opportunity for grumbling and complaining? In verse 15, Peter directly connects setting Christ apart as Lord in your heart with being prepared to give an account for the hope that's in you. The readiness to which he's calling us is not about having the right method or even the right content. Peter's not saying, okay, be sure you have your three-minute testimony ready to queue up at a moment's notice. The readiness that he's talking about here is courage to proclaim the reason for your hope. Do you have to script out the reason for your hope to share it with somebody? I hope not. Jesus told his own disciples, don't worry about what you'll say. Tell them the truth, and I will give you the words to say. According to Peter, the one that you actually consider to be most worthy of your fear and of your trust, he's the one that rules in your hearts and he determines your behavior and your words. He says, sanctify, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts and be ready to be useful to God. Instead of fearing the intimidation and slander and shame that you have good reason to expect from men if you actually live on God's terms, Peter commands you and me to set Christ apart as Lord in our hearts. You can't do both, by the way. (laughs) Our words and actions cannot be governed by the fear of men and by godly submission to the Lordship of Christ. At the same time, it's one or the other. In Galatians 1.10, Paul said, if he was still trying to please men, he would no longer be a bondservant of Christ. It's one or the other. When you are persecuted for doing what's good, beloved, that's your cue. To step up to the plate and to speak of the living hope that you have in Christ with no fear of what men may say or do to you, even if it means you end up in a place like Jeff Humphreys has spent the last 13 years in. I knew a young man who, was, who came to one of our youth camps many years ago, and some of you knew him, Andrew Namtu. 
He grew up in Romania under the Ceausescu regime, and his, his, he didn't know his dad all that well because his dad spent most of his time in prison because he was an evangelist, a Christian evangelist. One day, a police officer ran over Andrew with his car and then backed up and ran over him again for good measure. He was a teenage boy, a preteen. That was before they escaped from Romania. He loved the Lord. He was in my cabin at camp many, many years ago. First time I ever went to youth camp. That kid loved the Lord. When God places you in a, in a situation to be persecuted for His sake, He didn't take away blessing from you. He doesn't let anyone take away His blessing from you. And He wants to use you in the midst of that, even if the people who are persing, persecuting you kill you. What does it mean to give an account for the hope that's in you? Well, again, I don't believe it means that you need to make an airtight case for Christ from your exhaustive knowledge of apologetics. The message that you and I bear to this world isn't some logical tour de force that no human reasoning can resist. Paul got his gospel message directly from Jesus Christ. And if anyone could brag about his ability to hold his own in a battle of wits, it would be Paul. But Paul places zero value on such man-centered advantages. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. He says, My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. There is nobody in this room who belongs to Christ who cannot be powerfully, powerfully used by God to proclaim Christ. And when God puts you in a situation where you are being reviled, intimidated, persecuted, mocked, maligned because you are living for Christ, that's your cue to step up to the plate and to give account for the hope that is in you. I've begun to pray, instead of asking God to give me opportunities to talk to people about Christ, I've begun to ask Him. I've begun to ask Him to put me in situations where I am made to suffer for Christ's sake so that I can proclaim Him. If He brings that about, remind me that I prayed that. The Gospel of Jesus Christ, that message, is the only message that will ever qualify to be called the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So talk about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Talk about the marvelous redemption from sin and from the eternal penalty of sin that God accomplished through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection and talk about the certainty of eternal life that you have been given with Christ in His kingdom forever and make it personal. Peter says, be prepared to give account for the hope, not the hope that's out there, the hope that is in you.
It's personal. Go back to Galatians, guys, and look at look at Paul's account of what God did with him. When he's sitting before the officials who were that he had to give defense to, what does he talk about? He talks about how God transformed him. How the gospel took him from being a, a hater of Christians and of God and a lover of human tradition and, com- and completely transformed him into, into being a lover of Christ whose life was sold out to Christ, who was willing to die for Christ. Keep it personal. Your living hope is not some mere proposition that you believe to be true. Your living hope is a person in whom you trust, who has redeemed you out of darkness into His marvelous light and who now dwells in you and lives through you. He is the one and only reason that the sufferings of this life are no threat at all to you. Talk about Him. Beloved, the message that we bear is the one and only truth that pierces and lays bare the hearts of men before God. And it's all God's doing, not yours. If something so pervades and defines your life that it fills you with joy inexpressible and full of glory, as Peter says in chapter 1, does anyone have to pry the words out of you to get you to talk about it? Just speak from your heart. As always, remember that you are not accountable to God for someone else's response to the gospel. You are accountable to God to proclaim the gospel with your lips and to confirm the gospel with your life. What God does with the rest, what God does with that, (laughs) is his business. Finally, Peter commands us to suffer with a good conscience. To suffer in a way that shames the wicked. He doesn't elaborate here on how we are to keep a good conscience because he already explained that part. Our conscience is pure before God when we suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. When we suffer for Christ's sake and not for selfish, sinful ends. Peter focuses in the latter part of this on the outcome that God brings about when we suffer for righteousness' sake. And he points to what God did with Christ's suffering. When we live in a way that adorns and confirms our proclamation of Christ, God will use our excellent behavior to put to shame those who revile us. I believe that clearly stated outcome by the hand of God goes a long way to explaining the rest of this passage, especially the parts of it that Theologians have scratched their heads over for centuries. And I'm not saying I'm any smarter than any of them. I, I would never pretend to have this nailed down with great certainty considering that godly men far smarter than, than I have been wrestling with it for centuries. So feel free to take what I'm going to tell you next uh, or leave it based on what, what you find in God's Word. Christ suffered and died with a perfectly good conscience in the eyes of his father because he suffered and died entirely for righteousness sake and not for evil his life and his suffering brought shame to those who opposed him and I believe that's what the proclamation is talking about here 
specifically when it says he went and proclaimed, made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, I believe that the spirits he's talking about are fallen angels. Angels who, by the time Jesus made that proclamation to them, had been in prison for a couple of thousand years since the days of Noah. The word spirits is used often in the New Testament with reference to demons, fallen angels. And there are passages that speak very specifically about angels who have rebelled against God and have been cast into a place of imprisonment awaiting their final judgment at the hands of God. One of those passages is from Peter in the next epistle, 2 Peter chapter 2. He says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, then you skip down. It says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly man from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Unrighteous what? Well, in this case, unrighteous angels. Demons. Similarly, Jude, Jude 6 says, Angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, God has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. That Peter passage brings a bunch of the pieces together that we find right here. Christ, the imprisonment of angels and the flood of Noah. When Peter says here in 1 Peter 3, just bear with me on this, when Peter says in 1 Peter 3 that Jesus went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, I believe what he's saying is that when Jesus died on the cross and before he was resurrected on the third day, he went to the place in which those rebellious angels are presently imprisoned. And he proclaimed to them his victory over sin and over death and over them. These were the same angels who enticed all of mankind in the days of Noah to turn away from God and to oppose Noah as Noah patiently obeyed God's command to build that ark. Christ's proclamation to these fallen angels of his victory over sin and death at the cross was not intended to save them. Jesus did not die to atone for the sin of angels. He had died to atone for the sin of men. His proclamation to these rebellious angels was to vindicate himself and to put them to shame. The last verse of this passage, verse 22, says that after his resurrection, Jesus ascended to the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. I believe that is the victory that Christ proclaimed to those demonic spirits even before his resurrection. And what does all that have to do with how we handle suffering? (laughs) Well, now, as we suffer with a good conscience on Christ's behalf for righteousness' sake and not for evil, our conduct also brings shame on those who oppose Christ. In verses 21 and 22, right after speaking of Christ's proclamation to these spirits in prison, Peter says, 
Baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I believe there is a powerful connection between Peter's mention of a good conscience here in verse 21 and his earlier mention of a good conscience in verse 16. It's the same phrase in both those verses. Peter wants us to make that connection. Here's the way I see it. Again, you can take this or leave it. One critically important act of obedience by which these believers that Peter is addressing would enter into the suffering of Christ with a good conscience was the act of baptism. Think about it for a minute. If you were a new believer living in a time and a place where there was fierce persecution against Christians, the surest way for you to be publicly associated with Christ in the eyes of your family, your friends, and your community was for you to be baptized publicly. Baptism would clarify to anyone that was watching that you considered yourself to be a follower of Christ and to be a part of the Christian community. That means when they were persecuted, you'd get persecuted. On the other hand, what reason in that same context, what reason would you have for holding out and not being baptized? What might cause a believer living in a time of persecution, great persecution, to be reluctant to be publicly baptized? It's pretty obvious, isn't it? The desire to avoid persecution. But any believer who took that evasive and cowardly approach then or who takes such a a cowardly approach now will live every single day of his life with a terribly unclear conscience before God. Any Christian who orders his behavior around avoiding persecution because of his association with Christ will go through his days with the Holy Spirit graciously but relentlessly working in his heart to break him of that misplaced fear and to turn his fear to the only one worthy of it. When Peter says here that baptism now saves you, he's talking to believers. The whole letter is written to believers. He says at the very beginning, he's talking to those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. The the salvation to which he refers here when he says baptism now saves you is not justification in the eyes of God unto eternal life. It is salvation, I believe, from the crippling impact of living with a bad conscience before God because you are not willing to suffer on Christ's behalf. Peter says that the salvation that baptism brings about is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now what does Christ's resurrection have to do with baptism and with us having a good conscience before God? Well, this is another place where I believe Peter and Paul are talking about the same thing. If you go over to Romans chapter 6, Paul declares that baptism is our identification with Christ. Now, The physical ceremony is a picture of the internal reality. And the internal reality is that we have been buried with Christ in the likeness of His death and we have been raised with Christ in the likeness of His resurrection. 
In our burial, in our association with his death, we die to sin. In our resurrection, our association with his resurrection, we are raised to newness of life. And Paul's conclusion then is, therefore, reckon yourself, consider yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God. Because that's what actually has happened to you. When we are baptized, we declare publicly not only that we are now associated with Christ and with his people, but that we have died to sin and have been, and have been made alive to God forever. And that, by the way, is exactly where Peter goes right after this passage at the beginning of chapter 4. He says, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. We suffer as a participation in the the crucifixion of Christ. And then we live for God. Even in the midst of that suffering, we live for God because we are participants in his resurrection. When we're dunked under the water in the ceremony of baptism, we proclaim that death to sin. And when we are raised up from out of that water, (laughs) we proclaim our participation in the resurrection of Christ. And we proclaim that we are here to live for him. Through that ceremony, publicly proclaimed our conscience is cured from the shame of a divided allegiance. God may have more in mind through Peter's words there at the end of chapter 3 than what I've just pointed out, but I don't think he has less in mind. We are called to suffer in all respects with Christ as our template, our example. Jesus suffered for righteousness' sake, the just dying for the unjust. And so we too are to suffer for righteousness' sake as those who were zealous for good, not for evil. Jesus suffered without fear, always entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's what freed him up, not to return evil for evil, but to return a blessing. And so we are to suffer without fear. We set Christ apart as the only one sovereign over our hearts and over our well-being, and we fear nothing that men can do to us. We know that whatever suffering godless men or angels, fallen angels, can bring down on us, God will use that suffering to multiply his blessing upon us even as he uses us to draw others into his kingdom. Jesus suffered purposefully that he might bring us to God. And so too, we are to suffer purposefully. We are to treat all suffering that we experience for doing good, not as something to be endured, but as an instrument to be powerfully used by God as we simply take opportunity in the midst of that suffering to give account for the hope that is within us. By his wounds, we are healed. May our wounds be used by God to draw many into that same glorious and eternal blessing and healing. Finally, Jesus suffered with a good conscience toward God, men, and angels. 
none of the shame directed toward Jesus hit its target because there was no shame to be borne by Christ and yet He bore all of our shame. Between the time of His death and His resurrection, He made it clear to demons who remain in prison to this day that He has the entire victory. May you and I live in a manner worthy of our high calling in Jesus so that those who shame us now will be brought to shame in the hope that unlike angels, some of them will be made to glorify God in the day of visitation. It is a marvelous thing for us to realize that when God puts to shame those who oppose Him and oppose us, that can be a redemptive work by His doing in the life of that person. A really good place, this is the last little bit, to start realigning our approach to suffering. A good place for us to start realigning our approach to suffering so it matches up with God's is prayer. It's good for us to go to God to ask for His kind deliverances from suffering for ourselves and from, for those that we love. We know that eventually He's going to deliver us from all of it. But beloved, let us resolve from this day forward that when we pray, we will put less emphasis on deliverance from suffering than we put on usefulness in suffering. Dear Father, we ask that of You now. We ask that You would work in our hearts and You would drive these things home. That You would, you would shatter all of our false understandings about what harms us and what blesses us and that we would realize and we would, we would humble ourselves before this marvelous reality that all blessing and all harm is in Your hands alone. And that as we suffer for the sake of our Savior, our blessed Redeemer, we are always, always blessed. Father, we pray that You would put us to good use and we accept the suffering that will come upon us for living, your, living on Your terms. And we ask, Father, for usefulness in that suffering for Your eternal purposes. We ask this in Jesus' name. Precious name, and for his sake, amen.